Hello, and welcome to Narratives, the podcast where each episode we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction and talk about the real-world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho, and with me is Nick Halper. Hello. Hi, Nick. So this week we will be talking about The World is Not Enough, a James Bond film. And the James Bond series is a series near and dear to my heart. We didn't quite get this episode recorded in time to do a gimmick-like timing release with uh, the release of No Time to Die, unfortunately. I would have liked that. But, I mean, I've been looking for an excuse to do a James Bond movie on this podcast for a while, and I scoured plot synopses for a while until I could just find this one little detail. Yeah, this one is now technically qualified to be on this podcast. Yeah technically (laughs) the film doesn't necessarily make such a big point of it but uh like i said i've been looking for an excuse to do a james bond film for basically ever and well we'll we'll make do with this yeah we will make some do with this (laughs) it's gonna be good so i think that the james bond series does not need any introduction here so even though you say that, I have to confess, and you're going to hate this. This is my first James Bond movie what? I've ever watched. <laughs> okay. I mean, in some ways, that's kind of good because that means that like you and I will not get into the weeds and way off topic in just like talking about James Bond things. Yeah. I didn't even see Skyfall or whatever, which would have been like, I don't know, the movie that came out recently while, and while I was watching movies. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because... Um, I mean, now I know where you're at in terms of James Bond. And so, like, there's lots of things in this movie where I would be like, oh, and then there's this really terrible, sexually suggestive banter. And that's just, you know, a James Bond thing. Noted. (laughs) And now I'll just maybe go into those in more detail for your benefit. (laughs) Perfect. So um, The World Is Not Enough is Bond film number 19, uh, starring... 19? Yeah. Oh my god. This movie series is like 80 years old. Oh my like what? The, Yeah, Sean Connery was the first James Bond in like the 60s. Oh my. Okay, reframing here. <laughs> yeah. So, like No Time to Die is Bond film number 25. <laughs> okay. Cool. So um, The World is Not Enough, Bond film number 19, directed by Michael Apted. And I'm looking at his IMDb right now, and mostly television, not a whole lot I recognize other than The World is Not Enough. This movie stars Pierce Brosnan, and this is his third James Bond film. And Nick, I kind of wish I'd known that you hadn't seen a James Bond film, because I probably would have recommended you watch um, GoldenEye first, which was Pierce Brosnan's first James Bond film. And that kind of, for me... A lot of people say that Casino Royale is the better film, and I fully understand why they say that. Mm-hmm. But for me, GoldenEye, as like the original Bond I grew up with, it's just kind of, to me, the gold standard of, of, huh. of Bond movies. Sure. It's a very good film. I have at least played GoldenEye, the video game. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think that in terms of like man hours of like, franchise involvement goldeneye 64 probably like ticks up more hours than all the other movies like combined easily yeah yeah for sure i probably spent like a thousand hours on that game yeah 
So it had a budget of 135 million and grossed 361 million, so it made a lot of money. In terms of Bond films, like it's not the best one. <laughs> it's also not the worst. Like there are things about this film that work. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit later about kind of how that whole house of cards comes tumbling down in my opinion. I don't know about you. Sure. Also, before we get into that, or really into the movie, it, since we're talking about Bond films, are are most of them pun-based humor? Is that? Um, it is. So Roger Moore in the, in the 70s and 80s, he was technically the third Bond, although the second Bond only was in for one movie. So he's kind of, many people, he's kind of their defining Bond in the way that Pierce Brosnan sort of is my defining Bond. Mm-hmm. Roger Moore was known for kind of bringing like this whole this sort of gentlemanly charm, his depiction of Bond. And in general, his Bond films were very campy and quite silly. Mm -hmm. And Gold and I actually moved a little bit away from that, as did the movie right before The World is Not Enough. But The World is Not Enough really kind of leaned into that heritage a lot more than Golden mm. than I remember Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies doing. And so the quips and the sexual puns like those are very much a Roger Moore thing that Pierce Brosnan has adopted here. Got it. Okay. Because there's a lot. Oh, so many. <laughs> like, I, I literally didn't even, like, call them out in my notes because it's just like, no. yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> like, if you come across your favorite one, feel free to highlight it as we go through because I will. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I have one in mind. Yes. Okay. Let's get started with The World is Not Enough. We start with the classic Bond gun barrel sequence. Uh, if you have seen a James Bond movie, you know what this is. And that sequence is like pop cultured enough, <laughs> whatever, that it shows up. Exactly. Although, yeah. like, I want to say it took the Daniel Craig movies, like three movies before they were willing to do that. Hmm. And I'm actually glad you mentioned about like the puns and like general silliness of the, of some Bond movies. Like the Daniel Craig movies, like, it's, like just like completely excised all of that. Oh, there's like serious action movies. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. It's actually one interesting thing. And I told myself I wouldn't do this and get in the weeds of Bond, but I do want to mention this though. Most Bond actors kind of have a singular quality or a singular trait that they bring that you can kind of point out very easily to their depiction of James Bond. Hmm. Or in my opinion, that's actually not the case with Pierce Brosnan. And that's not to say that um, he's not a very good Bond. He's probably my favorite Bond, to be honest. But like you think about Daniel Craig and it's he brings like this grittiness and a, and a physicality to Bond. Uh, Roger Moore, as I mentioned, you know, is, you know, gentlemanly, charming, kind of silly. Timothy Dalton was kind of Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig, like gritty and grim. And Sean Connery obviously originated the role. Um, so and I'm doing George Lazenby dirty here by leaving him off. But I have no memory of the movie he was in, unfortunately. <laughs> But like Pierce Brosnan, I can't actually name a singular quality in that way. It's just that he slides so well into that role. Mm. You just look at him being Bond and you're just like, yes, he is James Bond. He is this super suave secret agent. Yes, I feel that. Now, that being done, let's really get into this and do stop me if I start doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we have our classic Bond gun barrel sequence. And then, so one thing about Bond movies, Nick, is that they always have like a pre-title sequence, usually a short action set piece before they roll like a title credits, like visual sequence. Okay. And so this pre-title sequence, Bond is infiltrating a Swiss bank in Bilbao, Spain. He's investigating a that a rich person paid for and a fellow MI6 agent was killed uh, for. The bankers are uncooperative and they threaten him, but Bond detonates a bomb hidden in his gun, remotely using his glasses. He blows this up. He fights his way um, free. And then before the police arrive, he escapes out a window with a briefcase of, full of money, quite amusingly using like a person as like a counterweight so that he doesn't completely free fall down. And so then we cut to MI6 headquarters. And this is actually kind of unusual. Most pre-title sequences are like a continuous action sequence and then cut to like title sequence. Mm -hmm. It's actually kind of weird to have like two things going on with like a pivot in between in a pre-title sequence. Interesting. And so this MI6 headquarters, that like weird pyramid ziggurat looking building, Mm -hmm. that's actually apparently real life MI6 headquarters in London. Oh, cool yeah they were they were allowed to uh, actually film on location and around the military intelligence six headquarters so that's pretty cool bond arrives in mi6 headquarters where he walks up to miss Moneypenny's desk so nick one of the recurring elements of bond films is that he has like this kind of playful flirtatious banter with his boss's secretary miss Moneypenny. got it yes it, yeah <laughs> And with every other woman, it seems like, but sure. Yes, but Miss Moneypenny sticks around in between movies. This is the more important one, so. Okay. The dynamic actually between him and Miss Moneypenny is different from like movie to movie and actress to actress. Like Piers Brosnan's Moneypenny is much more like playful and like she's not like necessarily like pining for him. Like she's, they're on equal terms. Yeah, yeah. She uh, kind of squashes this interaction. Yep. They banter. He gives her a very phallic fancy cigar, <laughs> which uh, she tosses in the garbage. And um, so it turns out the money in the briefcase that he was recovering belongs to Robert King, who is a rich old friend of M. M is Bond's boss, as I think you probably gathered. Right. And in this case, uh, M is played by Judy Dench. Judy Dench is an incredibly acclaimed actress. She's probably like the UK's Meryl Streep, if not more acclaimed. Mm -hmm. So they return, they're going to return the money to him. But um, as King walks up to the MI6 vault to recover the money, it blows up. <laughs> yeah, but not before Bond notices that it will. And he tries to warn him, but fails to do it in time. Yeah, there's a conveniently located hole in the wall. And I don't know how this bomb caused like such widespread destruction, given that it's like all centered in this like pile of money. Mm -hmm. Like it's apparently like blown out like a different floor where Bond is on randomly. I don't know. It's weird. Anyways, so he sees that the bomb was detonated by a boat in the Thames River outside. And so Bond takes his own boat, which was just again very conveniently sitting there and we have a big action set piece vehicle chase on the thames important to note that this boat that bond takes was not stored on the sea level of the <laughs> building no but yet somehow like there's just like a, a channel out directly to the thames river yeah it, it leaps out a second story window into the water from like a <laughs> like a water channel that's in the building <laughs> 
yeah, you don't have one of those? <laughs> Insane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is not the most ridiculous thing this boat will do in the next few minutes. No, it does. I mean, I I know we shouldn't get into all the details because it's a long movie and there's a lot of action sequences. But this one I found the most kind of ridiculous in some ways, but also the coolest in some ways. Um, so the the woman's driving like a larger speedboat and there's a scene where she like basically like swipes a dock with the boat and it, it, at first it's kind of like unremarkable and then you remember this movie was filmed in like 99 and this was like a real set piece that happened that they probably only got one shot of and it's just so perfect because her boat like hits the dock and just like grinds the entire dock like destroying a building mm-hmm. and then zooms off and it was so cool yeah one thing i really like about this set piece is that it's you it's very clearly mostly practical effects and stunts yeah so far as I can tell, there's very little CGI, and if there is any CGI, it has held up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it was really cool. Uh, but then the it's like shortly followed by like him taking his little like boat and like <laughs> using some jets on it and cruising around the streets. He like, literally just like scrapes along the road. It's <laughs> like turning down alleyways and stuff in his boat. Yeah, it's easily the most absurd part of the chase. And considering that he literally goes underwater at one point. That's saying something. Yeah. Also, at one point when he goes underwater, you get a shot of him adjusting his tie as he's underwater. <laughs> yeah, it's good. That like sets to me, like set the mood of the film. Like I knew what I was in for yeah. watching that specific little clip. So eventually he catches up to the assassin and then she she commits suicide by shooting like a propane tank on the side of a hot air balloon, which blows her up because she is so afraid of her employer that she'd rather just do that than go into custody. Impactful. So then we go into the title sequence and I like this title sequence. Like there's far worse title sequences out there in, um, in, in terms of bond films. It's lots of oil themed visuals, like the coloration and like oil derricks and stuff um, to go along with the, typical nude women silhouettes that are always in bond title sequences yeah i found it quite trippy and also it's like straight up like peak 90s um (laughs) cgi stuff yeah yeah i Uh, mean it but it's it's good so i know enough to know that bond films usually come with a dedicated like song yep during the title sequence and we get one here yes yeah, I mean, the song is The World Is Not Enough by the rock band Garbage. I mean, it's fine. It's a fine song. Like, it doesn't really stick in my memory in the way that some do. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it would not be in my top 10, probably. It's not bad. It's just like, it's just kind of a nothing song. Yeah, it's garbage. Like, the Daniel Craig songs, like, they're fantastic. Okay, so after the title sequence, we cut to Robert King's funeral, and we meet Robert King's daughter, Electra at his funeral. And then in a debriefing about the murder and um, kind of they're planning next steps, right? Uh, they're saying that they've, they've gotten attacked at home, right? Like this is, this is not okay. So they're kind of on the war path. But in that, Bond is not given an assignment because he has an injury, but he's shown very prominently with his arm in a sling. M tells him that he has to get cleared before she'll give him an assignment. So he goes in for a medical examination. And although he, ha- he still has like a broken collarbone or something, he gets the doctor to clear him by having sex with her. Classic Bond, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yes, very much so. And the doctor, who is not named in this in the movie, but if you look at the credits, 
And one like hallmark of Bond, Nick, is that women often have goofy, goofy, very suggestive names. Like even Money Penny's weird name. Yeah. And her and she is named Dr. Molly Warm Flash. Okay. <laughs> My only note for this scene here is that Bond has a vague idea of consent. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it if you believe it, like that's actually much less problematic than like Sean Connery's Bond, who is like kind of straight up a rapist. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great. Luckily, we're not watching those movies. <laughs> so we have the classic Q sequence. So Nick, like in most pre-Craig Bond movies, there's like a bit where where like the gadget master, the engineer yeah. Q, like in- introduces all these things to him. And it's usually comic and they and he and uh, Q and Bond will banter and stuff. Yeah, I, and this is like common enough that it like that's the like other spy movies just follow that same sequence exactly. And so Q is played by Desmond Llewellyn. Um, he was Q basically since Sean Connery up until this movie. John Cleese is introduced as Q's successor, who Bond calls R, and I like that bit. That's a nice joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and so the gadget introduction proceeds, where we are ran through the car, um, and we're also run through a weird inflatable shelter jacket with you know very specific that couldn't possibly turn up later (laughs) yeah and then q offers 007 a last piece of advice as he like lowers himself through the floor and that last piece of advice advice is always have an escape plan nice uh this was desmond llewellyn's last appearance as q this was actually not intended to be a goodbye or his last movie Unfortunately, he tragically died in a car accident a few weeks uh, after release of, of The World Is Not Enough. So um, he did not appear in subsequent movies. And in Die Another Day, he was, mm. John Cleese was explicitly referred to as Q. But, you know, even though it wasn't meant to be a retirement, like the vibe of it, like it's, it's a nice send off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, worked out. As it turns out, Electra King was kidnapped by a terrorist named Reynard. And um, we now finally get to the neuroscience of this. Uh, 26 minutes in um, to recording. I don't know what it is on actual runtime. It tells you how much I cut out of these things. Um, <laughs> but Renard has a bullet in his head. And oh Dr. Molly Warmflash reintroduces herself and tells everyone in the briefing that Renard, the bullet in his head, is still moving. And will eventually kill him, but in the meantime, he cannot feel pain. At the time of the kidnapping, M, who was an old friend of Robert King, she told him not to pay the ransom because, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists, blah, blah, blah. Like, And so then Electra escaped on her own. The sexy doctor further explains that the bullet is moving through his medulla oblongata, mm-hmm. killing off his sense, touch, and smell. Renard, he also feels no pain and apparently has like can push himself past normal human limits. Yes. And she also emphasizes because there's like a time component to this movie. <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, that these like abilities of his, I guess, provided to him by the bullet moving through his brain will get like make him more and more powerful right up until he dies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, 
I mean, that that's all pretty silly. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> uh, I guess we'll find out. Well, first of all, how does someone survive a bullet through the brain? And, you know, it's not unheard of. No. It's not common. I mean, as we've talked about previously on this podcast, people have survived much worse things going through their brains, like railroad spikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so a bullet's nothing in some ways. So bullets to the brain or bullets to the head. First off, there's lots of different types of bullets. I think it's important to emphasize. We don't know what type of bullet Renard has in his brain. These, like the types of bullets, can drastically influence kind of how they interact with the brain and where they end up. So neurosurgeons classify bullet injuries to the head as either bullet penetrations or bullet perforations. And Renard has a penetration because the bullet never re-exited the head. Mm. It was entered through his like right temple and got stuck, um, at least by what they show in the like hologram that Molly Warmflash shows us. Boy, that hologram looks awful in 2021. <laughs> yeah, it's not great, but it's good enough that you and I can see the path of the bullet trajectory, which, by the way, is already kind of weird because they show the trajectory as like, it's not linear, right? It's like, it's like this curvy path, meaning that the bullet must have like been lodged pretty shallowly into like the prefrontal cortex area when it hit, meaning it probably like just pierced the skull and then entered there. So it was in this case, we probably know that it was actually like a soft bullet of some kind. Uh, so like a hollow point um, or like either, or like maybe like a solid lead bullet or something else that like kind of spreads out and uh, splashes or deforms on impact. Mm -hmm. And so um, to kind of get into how you survive a bullet to the head, uh, that's one way. Hollow points are traditionally seen to like cause more damage overall because they like spread out and fracture into like shrapnel or create basically a larger surface when they enter the body. But in the case of the skull, these hollow points can actually then pierce and their velocity is slowed so much that then they then just kind of like sit in the softer mass of the brain, um, which is usually the best case scenario because otherwise it's that like shock wave of impact of the bullet having enough velocity when it hits that just like destroys the soft brain tissue. Okay, so if that happens, and then you have to get onto an operating room table like quickly enough, right? Yeah, so 80% of bullets to the head are fatal. <laughs> and then beyond that, uh, they're pretty much always removed. And so the idea of a bullet staying in the head happens only 1% to 3% of the time uh, for, for people who survive. And then past that, uh, I'll get into some other stats, I guess, as we get into it. But... I can say that the the other second reason that it could be likely that a bullet gets lodged in the head is if it fell from gravity. So like <laughs> there's uh people, you know, who like shoot their guns in the air to celebrate like New Year's Eve or something. Yeah, it's the most typical way people get them lodged in their brains. Huh. Okay. So why would you not remove it? Like if it's just like in a deep structure where you just don't have like a safe path or a safe trajectory to like get in there and remove it yeah exactly um so if it's near something vital or like if it's lodged in such a way or like shaped in such a way that the surgeon feels that it could uh, cause more problems to remove it than to leave it in but this is a also kind of an odd decision path because it also depends again on the material of the bullet uh, bullets being made out of different types of materials can leach like toxic substances yeah even though there is a whole um like convention um 
on making sure that people don't use poisonous bullets. Uh, the metals and bullets are kind of naturally poisonous. Right. So what about the idea that it's still moving? Any of the original velocity is arrested at that point. Like that's just, that is absolutely true. That cannot not be true. Right, right. And this is why I'm so stoked about this episode because I got to learn something that I did not know at all. Like when it was first said it was moving, Brianna and I looked at each other and we just started laughing and (laughs) (laughs) mocking the movie. Yeah, I read a case study titled uh, Moving Bullet Syndrome. (laughs) No way. Yes, and that's not just one case study. There's tons of them. It's a real thing. Like bullet migration intracranially, it happens rarely. Like normally when a bullet's lodged, it stays there. But sometimes, approximately like 4% of the time, so now we're talking about like only 4% of bullets stay in brains and then 4% of those bullets move. They travel through the brain and they can do it in like semi-spontaneous directions, but they're like kind of dictated by like... um some of the anatomy around like the bullet impact site. So like they travel along fiber tracks and they like move towards like CSF and gravity draws them downwards. And so you won't believe this, (laughs) but the whole idea of the bullet getting lodged, like passing through prefrontal cortex and then moving through a ventricle, dropping into the back of the uh, major ventricles and like passing through the fourth ventricle into the medulla oblongata is not just possible it's the likely path (laughs) like i was like freaking out while i read these articles like i i I read probably like 30 of these case studies on bullets in the brain and it's not just the common path like it's it's like typical bullets that get lodged into like deeper brain structures or that pass into like occipital or whatever usually end up getting sucked down into the spinal cord and is that just because like like a pressure differential between like because of that space? I think it's like yeah, it's like it's it's all of it. It's gravity, basically the way your brain is shaped. Like even if it falls to the surface or the floor of your brain, it can kind of move along that towards the spinal cord and brainstem. It's the movement of CSF because there's like CSF fluid movement from where it's generated um, in ventricles down through to the spinal cord. It's fiber tracks, so like things, obviously your spinal cord is like a huge fiber tract, but also like medulla oblongata itself is like kind of fiber tracty, and there's stuff that like, there's a lot of tracks that point towards uh, brainstem, and I guess all three of those pieces. That's so cool. Yeah, it's great. Like, I know I know we're not to the like science writing section yet, but like, this is real. <laughs> now, we have to critique them in a couple ways, because... The part where they pointed in the hologram and said they were in medulla oblongata was just like medial. Yeah, that was in like thalamus or something, right? Yeah, yeah, it was like (laughs) way off. I mean, I'll let you talk about some of the like functions of these areas we're passing through, like what medulla oblongata does and sensory. And uh, maybe you can also expand on a prefrontal cortex since that's where it entered. Okay. So actually, doesn't medulla oblongata act, it's mostly autonomic function, right? Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't explicitly like, it doesn't explicitly have a ton of function in sensory, in somatosensory input, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess. Like stuff is distributed over, but like my understanding is mostly like autonomic function. It makes sense it going there would kill him because like once things start messing with your autonomic functions, you just die. Yeah. So yes, autonomic functions, but also because the medulla is kind of like interface to the spinal cord, you can get that like loss of sensation Hmm. component. Okay. 
Gotcha. And then like prefrontal cortex. Um, I mean, it's mostly like decision making, like mo- like some planning and um, and also like personality, personality development, right? Yes. But damage to prefrontal cortex is often associated with poor decision making. So it's like these executive functions, right? So it's like poor decision making, poor like mood regulation, general negative affect or angry affect. Mm-hmm. And um, so like here's a, here's a quote from a, an article on prefrontal cortex damage. Uh, dysfunction or damage in the prefrontal region may result in severe and chronic social maladjustment despite normal car- cognitive abilities. Well, I mean, Renard was a terrorist even before he got shot in the head, though, right? True. <laughs> so he was kind of always an asshole. <laughs> okay, so are you claiming the brain structure in the bullet uh, as your neuro mo- most neuro moment? Yes. My neuro moment was post-movie, which was like reading these articles and being like, holy shit, <laughs> they did it. They did it right. <laughs> and I am wrong. <laughs> I deserve to be mocked. So this movement can be like really different in time too. For people who don't know, the brain is, you can kind of imagine it like jello. And so you have this like very solid object inside of a pretty solid but squishy object. And therefore it can like, depending on that density and where it happens to sit in the brain, these bullet migrations can happen over the course of days to years. There was a case study where it moved over the course of 36 years from a lady's um, frontal area to mid spinal cord. (laughs) It's crazy stuff. And all of this time, she, no functional deficits or anything in... No, that's the perfect thing that makes this movie make even more sense. <laughs> she basically had these like gradually changing symptoms. So she went through a period of her life where she was uh, tetraplegic for a while. And then she went through a period of her life where she had like uh, cardiac and breathing problems. And then she went through a period of her life where she lost sensation in part of her limbs. <laughs> and then they removed it from her spinal cord and then everything went back to normal. I mean, yeah, like all that tracks tetraplegic, like, yeah, probably it was stuck somewhere in her spinal cord that like was cutting off like um, everything coming in from below the neck that feels like it tracks heart and breathing problems. Yeah, like brainstem, like autonomic functions. That's like, that's why it's a big deal if you mess with autonomic functions. And then limbs, like, like all the sense, all the receptors and everything in your limbs, like they're innervated by like nerves coming out of and going into the spinal cord. So yeah, this all this all tracks. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so does it make sense that he's like this Superman that uh, that that can't feel pain, that can't feel anything? Uh... <sighs> you know, I I don't I don't know what to say about it. It it makes sense this whole like loss of sensation thing, which they mostly highlight in the movie. I don't know about the uh, can push himself longer and go without sleep or whatever part. Right. (laughs) Okay. I do know that there's some like sensors effectively in our muscles that detect kind of like weight and force. And it's effectively like an injury protection mechanism to stop ourselves from using our muscle in such a way that we like throw our arm too hard. Mm -hmm. And so like supposedly if you lost some sensation, maybe you would uh, be able to like push harder lift more okay so let's get into exactly how you might lose touch and pain and all of that yeah all of that is part of what's called the somatosensory system and so we'll kind of start at the end like the end of your limbs so i think i'll probably just use fingers as an example because that feels like it makes sense Mm -hmm. 
if you're touching your finger on just a table or something, basically what happens is you have somatic sensory receptors embedded throughout the skin, which then connect to individual sensory nerve fibers. And so there's different sensor groups for different things. So some receptors are specific to touch. They're called mechanoreceptors. Some receptors are sensitive to pain and other receptors are sensitive to temperature. Those are called thermoreceptors. Basically, when you touch something, the nerve ending is slightly deformed, which affects basically the ion channels in the receptors, which then cause a signal to be initiated at the neuron close to the skin. Those signals are conducted to neurons in the spine. And then those go up the spinal column, nuclei, and finally to somatosensory cortex, which is basically, if you think about the middle of your brain, there's a giant like canyon, so to speak, in that part of the brain that's called the central sulcus. And the somatosensory cortex is basically like that part of the brain directly behind the central sulcus. So one interesting thing about the spine is that basically there's nerves going out and those kind of affect movement. And those are carrying basically the movement commands from your brain. And that's why if you have a spinal injury, like, and it's high enough, those just end there. But then there's also um, nerve fibers coming in. And that's kind of the path that we're talking about in this case. And so, and so there's a couple of different ways you might, you might have a functional deficit in terms of touch. You could have maybe damage to the somatosensory cortex itself, or you might have damage to the input nerves going into the spinal column. And it sounds a little bit that's probably what that lady that had that bullet that traveled was um, experiencing, right? When she was experiencing the limb limb perception issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Though she also did experience uh, like medulla oblongata <laughs> issues at some point in her case too. Ah, Okay. One thing to note here is that sensory information, like what I just described is for touch. I mentioned that there's different receptors for different kinds of sensations. And so the sensory information entering the spinal cord actually travel in independent, well-defined pathways. The touch pathway is actually distinct from the pain pathway. They're different nerves. In terms of pain, they're a little different. It's a similar overall path in that like there's receptors, uh, and then they travel through nerves to your spinal column and then go up to where they end up. But the pain pathway axons, they're a little anatomically different than most. And so basically the impulses travel a little bit more slowly. Interesting. In terms of what happens after that and what actually causes pain, so it's, it's a neurotransmitter issue. Mild pain triggers release of a neurotransmitter called glutamate in the spinal cord. And then stronger pain results in release of glutamate and another neuropeptide called substance P. And substance P results in increased pain intensity. And this is why we can address pain pharmacologically. Interesting. Okay. The reason for this is that we have things in the body called opiate receptors. You you knew it was going to get to opiates at one point or another, right? Yeah. Activating opiate receptors by, you know, taking Vicodin or Oxy basically blocks the release of substance P in spinal cord and midbrain. So you don't feel that pain, among other effects. Got it. There's other there's other tools we use to block pain, too, that aren't just pharma. You know, we come from a neurodevices background, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, spinal cord stimulation is often something used to treat chronic pain. 
And it's usually after first line treatments for that chronic pain have failed. Mm-hmm. Although it's not brain surgery, you know, <laughs> it's not that invasive. True. It's class two in some cases. Do they do it as an outpatient procedure? Um, I think for the ones where you don't implant an actual neurostimulator and you like him stim from the outside. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. What surgical specialty does that? Uh, usually neurosurgeons. Really? Oh. Yeah. Okay. But there's also like spine-based neurosurgeons who specialize in it and stuff. Okay, so like a functional neurosurgeon probably wouldn't do that. Right, yeah. And there's also like pain neurosurgeons who kind of specialize in spinal cord stimulators and stuff like that or doing like... um, Because there's another type, like besides the device-based treatment of it, you can also just like cut those pain nerves out, (laughs) which is like one option. That seems irresponsible. Yeah, that's like the uh, whatever end of the treatment letter. Oh, okay. So it's basically just like if it's basically refractory to literally everything else you've tried. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of what happens to those pain signals, like pain sensitive cells in the spinal cord relay information to several areas of the brain, including somatosensory cortex and and then thalamic structures kind of deep in the middle of your brain that have a role in emotional associations with pain. And so, um, and I don't know that much about spinal cords. It sounds like what they're trying to do is maybe like break up some like activity in those pain sensitive cells that are just causing chronic pain. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a nerve block, just like stim to stop signal being able to move through them. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. So having talked a little bit about how the signals get up there, what do you think is going on with Renard? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess like as you move into that medulla oblongata, which is kind of like that hub, I guess, from the spinal cord that like distributes to those areas, he's you're just hitting the right nerves and not the ones that make you like throw up or have tremors. <laughs> Since the bullet's literally not like not in his spinal cord, it didn't like sever those incoming nerves. Sure, yeah. But again, like, the pain and touch are independent pathways. Right. So we'd have to get like all of them. Sure. And, but that also means that it's kind of possible to just get these like, oh, true. You're saying it's getting pain and touch for him because he can't feel anything. Yeah. During that scene with him and, uh, or I'm yeah. spoiling movie, but. <laughs> Where he like smashes a wall and, or something and gets some glass in his arm. Yeah. Yeah. And then he like, and he holds like a burning rock. Yeah, true, true. Okay. Well, part of the way that moving bullet syndrome happens is it's not just from like gravity and my CSF migration and stuff. It's also from the toxicity of the bullet killing off cells. And then as it kills the cells, it makes an area of like a vacant area or like a softer area. And then it moves along that path, just killing stuff, (laughs) just like tunneling uh, through tissue as it kills it in slow motion. So maybe that's all that it's doing. So we're not, it's possible, and it all actually kind of makes sense in some ways. They've just kind of taken it to 11 for dramatic purposes. That's that's our word on this? Yes. Yes. Cool. Awesome. So congrats, Bond people. <laughs> because, I mean, when I first heard Medulla Oblongata as well, all I could think of was Adam Sandler's uh, Waterboy, because that's like, they. I, I don't even know why. I don't, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was another movie that came around like two years previous to this one. And Medulla Oblongata was like a funny quote from the movie about how alligators have like, 
reduced medulla oblongatus that makes him extra aggressive or something. I, I can't remember what it's about, but it was mostly just used because it was like a funny word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I thought its function was in the Bond movie. There are no shortage of fancy sounding brain regions <laughs> if you want to sound fancy to a general movie watching audience, though. Oh yeah, you just have this uh, structure in uh, in in ventral caudate here, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> not mammillary bodies, intermedullary lamina. Okay, that's the fancy one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, slight behind the scenes things for viewers: like we don't really talk a whole lot about the movie before we actually record this. We kind of just watch the movie, take whatever notes we take, and then like take whatever scientific notes we take, and and go from there. And in accordance with who's talking, Nick did all the like bullet stuff, uh, which I find incredibly fascinating. And I did like the somatosensory stuff, which Nick literally already knows because he knows neuroscience. (laughs) Coincidentally, it worked out well this time. Yes. So thank you. That was (laughs) so interesting. So back to the movie. So to be clear, this whole like Bernard can't feel pain is not actually a pain, not actually a major thing in the movie. It's, it's like straight up doesn't matter. Like it, no, it's shown no. for like, I guess, <laughs> dramatic intrigue at some yeah. points, but uh, past that it's useless. It has no effect on the events of this movie. <laughs> this is just us like enjoying that aspect. So Bond having passed his medical by boning down with the doctor, which like, Holy crap. Doesn't that violate like half a dozen different ethical and professional ethics like things? Yeah. And they also did it on company grounds. (laughs) Yeah. Beyond all of it. Yeah. Okay. So he's assigned to investigate and also protect Electra. As he drives up to the oil pipeline construction site in Azerbaijan, he passes a helicopter with a giant buzzsaw assembly. It is, it looks very silly. It's apparently meant for like, clear-cutting forests yeah it's for cutting forests next to power lines so helicopters just fly them and they just like trim off the trees that are getting near power lines wait that's a real thing yeah 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 i just assumed it was like a silly thing that they invented for this movie yeah let's put a buzzsaw on a helicopter no it's a real thing but i only found out it was a real thing like two weeks ago uh so luckily you know we filmed this episode now but yeah, they're real things. Uh, helicopters just fly with them to like clear out big patches of trees that are encroaching on like power lines or other like long things. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Okay, um, but it still is a uh, Cherkov's buzz saw. <laughs> I guess right. Is that the right word? Chekhov. Chekhov's god. <laughs> so Bond arrives up at the town and he watches Electra amicably resolve a dispute that the construction team is having with the locals. He comes to Electra with his concerns and she is unconcerned about MI6's um, being worried that someone's out to kill her. She's just like, I am building a pipeline that will put three Russian pipelines out of business and you come here to tell me somebody wants me dead? Like, buzz off. So she doesn't think that he will be all that useful, but she agrees to let him come with her to do an inspection of the survey lines, which are only accessible through heli-skiing. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. (laughs) So Nick, ski chases, basically up until the Craig movies, are a Bond staple. Oh, I thought it was like a rare thing. I mean, they don't show up in every movie, but like... Every actor has had at least one movie, and this includes the actor that only had one movie, that had a ski chase. Mm, I see. Unless there's a ski chase in No Time to Die, Daniel Craig will 
be the only one without a ski chase. This ski chase is great. I have a couple of comments on it, though. And well, first of all, I want to ask you, like, so I don't ski. I only snowboard and you ski. How is their skiing? Oh, uh, it, it looks uh, looks pretty good. There's a difference in skiing between uh, the actors and the people doing some of the stunts, I think. Oh, <laughs> but like, holy crap. I would give anything to be dropped off by a helicopter on that terrain. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. They also are not wearing helmets, which feels strange to me. I mean, obviously there are, I understand why, but like as someone who never snowboards without a helmet and basically everyone at a resort has a helmet on these days, it's just very odd to see. Yeah. The nineties were a different time. (laughs) Oh, Oh, actually I'm glad you mentioned that. Like, Pierce Brosnan's glasses and or sunglasses in every scene that he is wearing sunglasses or glasses. They're like the most 90s eyeglass frames that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, aggressively 90s. Basically, they're skiing to go survey the pipeline. And then all of a sudden, snowmobiles on parachutes arrive and initiate the ski chase and start like shooting at them and throwing bombs at them. And that's why they're, you know, running away. So did you notice anything about like the terrain in the close-up shots and like the jumps and the stunts between that first shot when they got dropped off by the helicopter and did the traverse? Yeah, they, they, they do. There's some sort of transition between scenery, I feel like. Yeah. And I don't know that people that like don't live very near a place that they can like ski or snowboard like Nick and I do (laughs) notice that's right off the bat necessarily, but the close-up shots and a lot of the close-up ski chase is on very obviously groomed runs. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like freshly groomed corduroy, but it is like very clearly tracked out, skied out kind of chunky groomed runs. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, there's some visual bloopers to this whole film. (laughs) That's one of them. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. It's fine. Like I'm a sucker for ski chases. So <laughs> there's another very James Bond moment when uh, he like is about to go over. He like dives out of the way of a cliff, and then the ski mo- the snowmobile like has too much momentum and it goes way over the cliff. And he's like, "See you back at the lodge." And then that's not the end of it. The snowmobile, as it's falling, just deploys a second parachute and keeps on going. He's like, "Oh, the look on his face." He's like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> like. <laughs> It's a nice moment. It's good. In all this chase, an exploding snowmobile crashes and triggers an avalanche, but Bond deploys that weird inflatable jacket shelter, and then it triggers her claustrophobia from the kidnapping. So um, Chekhov's jacket shelter thing. (laughs) (laughs) After they, there's like a scene transition, and they, Bond is actually starting to look for more information on Renard. And to do that, he visits a casino where he is wearing some x-ray sunglasses. So all sorts of fun shots of him seeing through people's jackets and seeing all the guns. Everybody has guns. You know, <laughs> lots of women's underwear. Classic x-ray sunglass scene, <laughs> I guess. But importantly, that he goes to meet the, uh, I guess, casino owner, Valentin Zukovsky. Since you haven't seen any other... Bond movies. Valentin Zukovsky is actually a returning character from two movies ago, Goldeneye. 
where it's established that Bond shot him at some point previously to any of the movies and gave him that limp that he uses a cane for. Ah. So they kind of have a love-hate relationship. I love their relationship, and I love this character. Like, for some reason, his style of humor really, like, struck me really well throughout the whole movie. Valentin is great. Yeah, it's it's good. Do you recognize the actor? No, I'm bad at that. I don't blame you. He looks very different, but he is played by Robbie Coltrane, who is best known for being Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, what? Okay. <laughs> That's mind-blowing, but okay. So basically, Bond chats with him for a little bit, trying to get some information, but then Electra shows up at the casino and does something kind of weird. She also meets with Valentine and just stakes her entire $1 million credit line on a single card high draw and she loses and then has like effectively no reaction and just leaves (laughs) and Bond follows her out. But at this point we cut to the reveal of Renard. We get to see Renard, I guess, kind of the first time in person at this point, right? Yep. And he is meeting with Electra's head of security, Davidov, who apparently is the inside man. And they have referenced that it must be an inside man multiple times. Yeah. So we finally get to see who it is. And this is where we get this cool scene of Renard holding. So first off, this scene is like really dramatic because they're in some sort of like flaming rock cave area, (laughs) like fire coming from the earth kind of stuff, like a volcano area, I guess. Honestly, like the visuals are more of like some sort of satanic ritual than anything. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like straight out of some like witchcraft movie this is where you would see this, but it's actually just like a spy film and Renard is just like monologuing with his <laughs> cronies. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets to show off his lack of pain by holding some burning rocks and he like forces, he punishes his like lackeys by forcing them to hold rocks too because they've like made mistakes. But then we cut to a scene of Bond and Electra, you know, getting intimate because they've had some sexual chemistry the whole time. I actually want to talk about this. Like, yeah. First of all, so Electra is played by uh, Sophie Marceau, who is a fantastic actress. Um, most of what she's been in is in French, but to a North American audience, she's probably well known for being the female lead in Braveheart and obviously this, but she's great. Yeah. She's a good, like, so the, uh, I, I would say the acting is kind of like variable through this film from different people. um yeah yeah (laughs) uh but i think she does really well uh there's also another character we get introduced to a little bit later that i think actually is really good but this is where we get uh basically like bond and electra have their relations and then bond kind of like slips out in the night to do some investigation and ends up on a I think a mission that like ended up he get, he gets far deeper into it than he intended to by <laughs> once slipping out in the night because uh, effectively he checks David off's office and then hides in his car trunk and shoots him when he opens it as a destination and then kind of pretends to be him. I guess he doesn't really like assume his identity, but he basically does what he was supposed to be doing, which is like taking this baggage to this airfield, getting in the plane, and like taking off to where. Renard is I think one of the funny things from this scene is that there's like so this movie is like full of product placement <laughs> like yeah it's 
just like jam packed with product placement bond holding like drinks and facing them to the camera uh, after the scene with Electra and him having sex it's like a close-up shot of his omega like seamaster watch <laughs> like it's and then in this scene it's just like probably the most like objectively aggressive product placement one because they like make this whole big show of like stopping him and saying like what's in the bag and he like pulls out the shoes and gives them to the like uh, pilot of the plane he bribes them with shoes <laughs> and that's how he gets on the plane even though he's not the person that was supposed to show up to this like very important like high stakes crime deal <laughs> my favorite part is that when they cut to him actually in flight the camera like starts with a shot of like the guards wearing their shoes on their feet and then pans up and over to them. The shoes are apparently a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, though, the plane lands and Bond gets to his final destination, which is this Soviet nuclear missile site um, where nukes are being decommissioned. And uh, he meets like a number of uh, different characters here. But we also begin to discover who he is supposed to be or like what his like cover is. He is supposed to be a nuclear scientist, I think, named Dr. Arkov, Arkovi, something like that. It's not very important. <laughs> um, but he meets Dr. Christmas Jones, who is a nuclear physicist played by Denise Richards, and she is responsible for decommissioning these nukes. She's initially a little suspicious of him, but all his paperwork checks out, seemingly, and so she lets him go into the silo. So before we get any further, um, Dr. Christmas Jones, you reference that there's another character that you actually really like the acting of. That wouldn't happen to be this character, is it? It is. It's Dr. Christmas Jones. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. I think, I think she did a good job. I thought, she's, I thought she sucked out loud. <laughs> what? I, I don't like, know what to tell you. <laughs> I have Expl no explain yourself objective evidence. <laughs> I just so so her intro is really bad. She's like suited up in like this nuclear radiation protection suit or some it actually just looks like a clean suit. And of course to talk to Bond, she has to strip out of it and like sexily strut over to a different table and she's like wearing skimpy shorts and things like that. Her acting in this scene I think is not very good, but as this action sequence plays out I think she does better acting than a lot of the other characters in the action sequence. And I'm sorry. I, I mean, th there's no need to apologize. My opinion does not invalidate your opinion, Nick. <laughs> Throughout the movie, I find that Denise Richards does not deliver her lines with any sense of urgency, like at all. And basically like doesn't modulate her voice to match like any situation she's in. And is basically super wooden through the entire movie um, in terms of delivering lines. Now, okay, so I, I, I have to give you some context here, which may influence my perception. Is Denise Richards normally an actress? Um, I mean, she has been in many things and she is primarily an actress, although my understanding is I'm looking at her IMDb, um, is that she was originally a model. Okay, but she has primarily been an actress for the majority of her career after transitioning into acting. Got it. So the person I was watching this movie with mixed her up for somebody else who was like only a model. And so I thought this was like a model cameo that ended up having a more major part in the movie. And I thought the whole time, I'm like, you're doing pretty good. 
for not being an actress. You know, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that up until basically like maybe the early 80s, late 70s. That's basically what they did. Like um, most of the Sean Connery films, the Bond girls were literally just like, because they filmed most of those movies in Europe. Mm -hmm. They would take like the Miss Italy or like Miss France, like the model and just like Mm -hmm. have them do all the acting. And then they would actually dub them, have someone voice over and dub their lines. Yeah, that's actually very close to what like they did with early Bond girls. <laughs> okay, so there's that. Um, also, I feel like her character kind it isn't great. So the way I say it, there's one point in the movie where like, how the hell am I going to um, disarm a nuclear bomb? And then Denise Richards just looks up and says, "Me." And to me, that like sums up everything about this character. Like this character is not great. Like, she doesn't have a lot of agency in this movie. All of the things that she does are just, like, things to facilitate things that James Bond needs to do. Sure. Okay, yeah. She, yeah. Also, I felt like her and Bond had, like, negative chemistry, especially compared to, like, Bond and Sophie Marceau, who, in my opinion, are, like, just crackling with chemistry when they're on screen together. Yes, I agree with all those statements. (laughs) Like I said, the fact that I disliked Denise Richards in this role does not invalidate your opinion of Denise Richards in this role. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, and I, I, I do actually need to go back and watch like the other two movies I've seen with Denise Richards in them, Undercover Brother and Starship Troopers, because I actually have no memory of thinking, man, Denise Richards sucks in this role. So I don't actually know if it's her, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the world is a colorful place. <laughs> yes. All right. As mentioned, after meeting Christmas Jones, Bond goes into the silo, sees Renard, and confronts Renard at gunpoint. But he's oddly alerted when Renard uses a turn of phrase that Electra has previously used to him. And so he's like, oh, wait. What? So at this point, Christmas Jones kind of interrupts. Uh, she's looked into this Dr. Arkovi or whatever his name was supposed to be. And... She realizes this guy was supposed to be 63. Pierce Brosnan does not look 63. And so she's like, explain yourself what's going on. And this results in Renard escaping and basically getting Bond detained. So so the Russian officer in charge of security is also doesn't trust Renard. And he's like, well, okay, this guy's an imposter, but I don't know who you are either. So this bomb is staying right here. At which point... Renard, his goons immediately start opening fire, um, and this triggers a gunfight with Bond. Bond, in this process, Bond actually shoots Renard a couple times, and he just completely, like, no-sells it, doesn't bother him at all. Okay, so this is one of my major complaints about how they how they depict this. Like, even though he can't feel what's happening to him, those things are still happening to him. Yeah. Yeah. There's no blood. Like, he doesn't bleed when he's shot. When he, like holds those uh holds those like scalding hot rocks like there's no like um no flesh melting off his hands or anything yeah yeah like uh, later when he like punches through some ceramic he should just be like bleeding all over the place he just like this has this like tiny low cut it, it's not even bleeding it's just, it's just like something lodged in his hand like yeah <laughs> it's no good yeah in all of that renard escapes with a nuke and sets off a small explosive charge in the nuclear silo and bond and jones narrowly escape this by outrunning an explosion which i'm not actually sure is a thing you can do although it's a slow moving explosion as you'll see in the visual sequence (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
So, I mean, up to this point, I have actually really enjoyed this movie. The casino scene is great. Valentine is great. The ski chase is good. And I like ski chases, so that bumps it up. It, it all kind of, everything's working so far. And then for me, I didn't like any searchers in this role. And here she comes. And then things also start like kind of, this movie becomes a lot after this point. Yeah. What we get next is Bond arriving back at Electra's house and confronting her, saying effectively that she has Stockholm Syndrome and that Renard has psychologically manipulated her and therefore she's like, loves him still or is working for him or something along those lines. And Electra says, no, that's not the case. And after you left me, I asked for M to actually come here directly. And she said yes. I really like the interaction between Bond and Elektra in this scene. I think it's fantastic. As Elektra like, has indignation and pushes back on him, like you can see Bond doubt himself. I think Pierce Brosnan and Sophie Marceau are great together. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So when M arrives, there's an alert that the pipeline has been attacked by Renard. And um, while they're looking into what's going on, they find that the nuke is traveling on like this little observation cart that's meant to check for pipeline integrity inside the pipeline. This is the scene where uh, Bond's like, how am I going to defuse a nuclear bomb? Christmas Jones just pops up. It's like, me. <laughs> and she's there for some reason. And I don't know why she's there. There's no plot reason why she needs to be there at Electra's house. No. <laughs> so they set off on another observation cart. And the idea is basically they're going at a speed slower than the nuke cart and it'll catch up to them. While defusing it, Jones notices that um, most of the bomb's fissile material has been removed basically meaning it's not actually a nuclear bomb, it's just a normal bomb. When they discover this, um, Bond tells Jones to just let it go, don't defuse it, and and they bail. The cart races past them and then blows up as it's supposed to, um, leaving everyone to think they are dead, which was Bond's entire plan. And it's this point where Elektra reveals that she is indeed working with Renard because she resents that M told her father not to pay the ransom, and she detains M. I really like how this plays out because first off, like everyone thinks Bond is dead and it's a very serious moment. M is very like upset because he's her best agent, right? Mm-hmm. And then I love that Electra just comes up to her and she's like, oh, this is, this is very sad. Here, this is for you. I have a gift for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, wait, wait, what? No, this is, this is not an appropriate time, Electra. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously that, item is like the item that reveals she is the ultimate bad person yes and then we get the caviar factory scene (laughs) yeah i i don't understand this scene fully it's it's entirely to bring in both the car again for product placement because i think this is the only place you actually see the car (laughs) (laughs) and uh of course to bring in our favorite piece of equipment in the movie I actually like this scene a little more now that I know those things are a real thing. (laughs) At first, I was just like, they really came up with the idea of buzz saws attached to a helicopter and really just needed to shoehorn it into the script somewhere. And now I'm a little more like forgiving of that. (laughs) Yeah, but they do crazy stuff in this scene. So Bond confronts Valentin for more information at his, at his caviar factory, but one of Zukovsky's bodyguards recognizes Bond's car. It's a um, BMW Z series, I think. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of interesting because most Bond movies have a dedicated chase scene that involves the car, and that's how they get their cars like uh, screen time. Not this one. 
The car drives 10 feet. <laughs> and the car does not end this scene in one piece. <laughs> no. Everything in this scene gets buzzsawed. <laughs> like, I don't know how it's the best way to say it. Like the buzzsaw helicopters, there's two of them, I guess, are just like flying around, just like cutting up the entire set, like cutting pieces off of buildings, cutting the dock in pieces and throwing things into the water. And eventually after he shoots down one helicopter with the uh, hidden missiles in his car, a second one shows up and cuts the car right in half. Hey, you know what's better than one helicopter with the buzzsaw on it? <laughs> many. I don't even know how many are there are in the scene. I guess it's two. <laughs> I mean, two get destroyed, right? And you would assume, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, they, eventually the buzzsaw helicopter cuts the entire building in half and it falls apart. It, it's good. <laughs> I guess one thing that like I found really funny about this scene is like, there's one part where Jones and Zukovsky are like in a building and then the buzzsaw helicopter bursts in, right? Mm -hmm. And then Jones and Zukovsky just kind of like very casually just like sidestep it. Yeah, because that's what you can do against a buzzsaw <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> yeah, like this thing, like it does not feel vaguely threatening in the least. Yeah, they're like not to cut people. They're just like to literally to cut up the scene. I <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. But I guess in the end, Bond does get his uh, what he came for because he gets information from Valentin. Um, Valentin informs Bond that basically the whole like card draw game, that was a sham. Basically, she was paying him $1 million for access to a nuclear submarine that his nephew is the captain of. As much as I like the fact that that whole spiel allows Valentin to be in this movie, because Valentin is great, but... It's also just kind of like convoluted and like unnecessary and it's like, I don't know. We, we have different opinions of this movie and it's fantastic because we've agreed on so many movies. I loved that reveal. It's like, <laughs> oh, that makes so much sense. What a creative way to pass money to people. <laughs> oh, I mean, I have no, I have no issues with like that part of it. It's just like that whole subplot feels just kind of like, oh, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, this is actually the first movie where we've had like fairly like highly differing opinions on like the movies themselves, right? I know. Yeah. So um, Bond, Valentin, and Jones figure out that Electra's plan is to load the excess plutonium that he took out of that nuke and pretended to send down the pipeline. He wants to load that into the nuclear submarine's reactor and overload it, killing 8 million people in the city of Istanbul and irradiating sea access out of the Black Sea from the Caucasus oil fields. Uh, this would mean that the overland pipeline that Electra is building will be the only route that oil can take into Western Europe, meaning she basically like controls all energy access there. They're double-crossed by Valentin's guard, who captures them and takes them to Electra as Renard poisons the crew of the sub, and his goons storm the sub, take over the sub, and start loading the reactor. So Bond is brought to Electra, where he's placed into a torture device, and um, you know Bond is like, "Oh, you're being controlled," and then she and then she has a further reveal where she's like, "No, I am controlling Renard. I have been manipulating Renard from the start. Like Renard has Stockholm syndrome for her. Like, yeah, reverse Stockholm <laughs> syndrome." Bond is in this weird torture device that's like. It's like a chair, and then there's like a bolt being pressed into like the back of his neck. You know, every time like she 
turns like that screws it in a little further into his neck and presumably the idea is that once she turns it far enough uh it'll break his neck Mm -hmm. and bond of course can't help himself but do a punny quip even literally being tortured he's like i wish i'd killed you when i had the chance and she's like oh you wouldn't you'd miss me too much uh you and bond is like no you mean nothing to me you were just one last and as, as she's turning like the turn to screw it further into his like he's like one last screw <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so silly but it's so good so at that point valentine arrives with a uh, gunman in tow and interrupts electra but unfortunately he is shot sad yeah but he has a cane gun which i feel like they underplayed this cane gun the entire movie yeah like, there's, where's the Chekhov's cane gun? <laughs> Initially, he's aiming the cane gun at Electra, uh, but then he points it over to Bond and then shoots him. And then Electra's like, ha, <laughs> even after all of that, he still tried to kill you. But in reality, what Valentin has done is shoot the lock off of this weird torture device that Bond is stuck in. So Bond escapes, he chases down Electra, who somehow is able to outrun him for quite a while upstairs in high heels. Good for her, like holy crap. Yeah, amazing. He chases her down, he frees M on the way from her imprisonment, and then he kills Electra. Bam. He shoots her right in the chest. She's dead. Dramatic, sad. He 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 feels some sadness over it. He does. Oh, and I forgot. In this whole sequence, they say the name of the movie. Oh yeah. They did. They finally said it. Like, while Electra is doing her villain monologue, she's like, I could have given you the world, James. And then he says, the world is not enough. Old family motto, which, and I had to look this up because I actually have no memory of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the George Lazenby one. Um, Apparently, that movie actually does establish the world is not enough as the Bond family, like, words or whatever of their house. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ooh cornerstone movie after all of that bond infiltrates the sub frees jones and we're kind of glossing over there's a lot of actiony things going on but it's also that's not super i mean the sub sequence is actually pretty rad to be honest i, I thought the sub sequence was a very cool like um action set yeah so bond infiltrates the sub frees jones and then fights the way his way over to like the control area of the sub and so they have a gunfight in like the bridge of the submarine, but in the process, somehow somebody like presses some levers they shouldn't and then shoots a console they shouldn't. And all of a sudden the sub is on the ground vertical. Yeah, like slams into the ocean floor. So now the whole thing is, yeah, vertical. So the whole set has been rotated 92 yeah. degrees. And that, I mean, honestly, that is what makes this set piece like actually like pretty rad. Yeah. So um, Bond and Renard fight. Um, Renard mostly maintains the upper hand for most of this fight because Bond is kind of distracted by having to rescue Christmas Jones, who was like stuck in the torpedo tube or something. I don't know. Also, there's like the whole no pain thing. They they don't really sell it all that much. But, you know, at no point is he actually particularly threatened physically by Bond in this fight. Yeah, yeah. It is during this fight or kind of the initiation of this fight where we get my favorite pun of the movie or whatever you want to call it, where as Renard is loading the reactor with the plutonium rod, he says, welcome to my nuclear family. 
<laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, it's so perfect. Yeah. So at some point, Bond's kind of getting beaten up and then he finally gets the upper hand and wins when he uses the reactor control to eject a plutonium rod into Reynard's midsection, which like completely impales him. One thing, Nick, is that usually like the villain in Bond movies gets their comeuppance in a very like oddly like satisfying, ironic, or gruesome way. Mm, this was all three. Yeah, yeah. As far as like the way it's depicted, it's actually quite a bit less grim than most. And uh, there's another movie where I'm pretty sure one person is like inflated like a balloon and like blows up. Oh my god. <laughs> After that, Jones and Bond escape by launching themselves out of a torpedo tube to safety before the whole thing explodes. And then, and this is like another recurring thing in Bond where like, where they're like, oh, where's Bond? Let's, uh, or like Bond pulls up in like an escape pod or something. And then he's just like boning down with, with the chick. Okay. That gives me a little bit more historical context to this, but the scene transition here is insane. It's never good. No, no, it's crazy. He's <laughs> swimming out of the submarine. And then in the next scene, he's like drinking champagne with Christmas on some balcony. Yeah. I mean, I never said these ending sequences were good. Like they actually very rarely are. <laughs> but other than the Craig movies, they always did them. <laughs> uh, so there's an ending sequence of at MI6, they're watching him through a satellite and they see like, you know, this red blob. And then that as they focus in, that red blob is revealed to be two red blobs, just like very close to each other having sex. And then they get warmer. Yeah. And then, yeah, then they're having sex. And then we get the line. This <laughs> line. Do you want to say it? Well, there's another one. <laughs> oh, there's two lines? Well, there's there's a line when they're, when they're like um, just drinking on the balcony. And then he says, I never thought I'd be having Christmas in Turkey. Oh, yeah. I, so at first I didn't even get that because I forgot her name was Christmas Jones. And then the other line, <laughs> which is basically as they're having sex. And is the last line of the movie. Yep. Is I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you can believe it, um, and it has been a long time since I've seen the sequel to this movie, Die Another Day. But Die Another Day is even hornier, is my memory. I, can't. I don't believe it, but maybe I'll watch it one day. It's also a much, much, much worse movie. But um, yeah, so that is The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. With a hefty science section right in the middle. Yeah. So what was your, what are your thoughts on James Bond? What would this, I, I, I feel like I did you dirty here by having this be your introduction to the Bond, to the Bond film. <laughs> like, this is not actually my least favorite Bond movie. Like, it's not great. It's fine. But there's, you know, there's far worse Bond movies out there. And there are things about this movie that work. Like, the entire first hour of this movie actually works quite well, in my opinion. Sure. Um, I would say overall, it was sillier than I thought they would be. I thought they were supposed to be kind of like grim spy movies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's like with these like sexy elements, but it's kind of like this, like, like you said, campy, silly, self-aware action spy movie. Yes. With some like sex thrown in. I can tell you that the previous two Pierce Brosnan Bond movies are not nearly as much of that. Like, particularly Goldeneye. Okay. 
uh, GoldenEye is far more grounded and it still like retains some elements of that in that he's still like super suave and like has great quips, but it's not nearly as silly. What I will tell you is Die Another Day, the sequel to this movie and Pierce Brosnan's last Bond movie takes all of those like silly campy elements and over the top things and takes them to like 11 and just leans into them so hard. Jeez. Also why it's not a very good movie. Yeah. I, I feel like we kind of already rated the science on this movie, or at least I feel like I did. Yeah. Spoiled my one to five. Okay. So explicitly, um, are you going to be a five on our scale here? Yeah. Four and a half to five. Okay. Like, I feel like the science is somehow more sound than like most other <laughs> things we've covered. Okay. So this is going to be the first episode where like what I thought my rating was going to be is actually like extremely different from what my rating is actually going to be given like what you taught me <laughs> during this yeah. episode. We learned about bullet intracranial bullets. Yeah, I'm going to go with a four. Wow. Yeah, like the science, like I wouldn't necessarily give the science a five simply because like, but I can, but I fully understand like that they made the changes they did and turned it up for like dramatic reasons. That fully makes sense. To yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you're being fair, you knock out some points for that and some for the bad hologram uh, anatomy. Yeah, so I'll give it a four. And as a movie, it's like 2.5 out of five. But like, because I because I literally learned all that stuff like in episode, I'm just going to like discount that and be like, yeah, four out of five. <laughs> yep. Okay, cool. So Nero and Nero moments. So I think um, you already claimed your most Nero moment, right? Yeah, yeah. So that being basically the bullet traveling into the medulla oblongata and yeah. moving. Mm -hmm. So that's your near most neuro. So that leaves me to pick a most near all moment. And I think I already talked about, I think so when he's doing things, maybe he doesn't feel the touch from them and he doesn't feel the pain from them, but they're still happening. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So like when he punches this ceramic thing and shatters and has it embed into his hand, his hand should bleed a lot. When he grabs this scalding hot rock, he should like have scarring and like the skin should like sizzle and stuff. That should still happen. True. So with that, that brings us close to the end of our episode here. You know, as far as takeaways from this movie, uh, well... I guess it's not necessarily take away from this movie, but like I learned that those weird helicopters with buzzsaws are actually real and not something like they just invented as a movie thing because it it sounds like something that Dr. Evil would make up in an Austin Powers parody of a James Bond movie. Yeah, yeah. No, real things. Really useful tools. <laughs> and uh, I guess my takeaway is... Uh just intracranial bullet dynamics you don't always die from a gunshot wound to the head weird stuff can happen if you don't <laughs> cool and maybe the final takeaway is like a consent is sexy bond i mean i fully am on board with taking that away from this movie although that's not something the movie presents not what you learn from it no <laughs> the movie is not trying to teach you that <laughs> that's okay 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Narratives, where we talked about uh, the world is not enough. If anyone has any questions or concerns, please feel free to send an email to narrativespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Nick, for joining me, as always. Thanks for having me for this delightful film. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I could introduce you to James Bond films, although I truly, truly wish I'd you had started off with either GoldenEye or Casino Royale because they are far better movies than this. <laughs> I'll jump to No Time to Die or whatever and uh, then go back to those. And thanks everyone for listening. Um, we'll see you next episode. <laughs>